Good morning. I thought I'd let you guys go first this time. Hello, church. It is so great to see you. How do you know you're having a bad day? I got a couple of ideas here. You know you're having a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know you're having a bad day when the bird singing outside your window is a vulture. You know you're having a bad day when you put the same contact, you put both contacts in the same eye. I love this one. You know you're having a bad day when your parents approve the person you're dating. <laughs> Why is that funny? You know you're having a bad day when the doctor tells you you are in fine health for someone twice your age. And finally, you know you're having a bad day when it costs more to fill up your car than it did to buy it. <laughs> Isn't that true today? Uh, Roseanne and I were in Waco, Waco uh, this uh, couple days this week, and uh, we were getting ready to come back, setting up our kids for the fall semester at Baylor University, and uh, we were at Walmart. Everybody in Waco goes to Walmart, and so uh, we made our trip to Walmart, and uh, we were getting out of the car, and a, a young man approaches us, and he said he's struggling uh, financially. He wants to go see his mom in Fort Worth, who's ill, uh, but he doesn't have enough gas to get there. Can we help him? So I said, sure, sounds like a good idea. Roseanne went to, uh, into Walmart and I went over to the Walmart gas station, swiped my card and just said to the young man, hey listen, fill it up. And I started walking away thinking, oh my gosh, what did I have just done? That's going to be $80. Okay, Lord, provide. And it's a lot of money. Well, you know you're having a bad day. I, I tell you, you know, for Roseanne and I, we've known that we've had a bad couple days this week uh, because on Thursday, we had to finally make the decision to put down our old beagle dog of almost 18 years. Man, that is one hard. How many of you have had to do something like that? Raise your hand. Why didn't you tell me how hard that would be? Uh, we came home on Friday and Roseanne made me a sandwich for lunch and for 18 years I used to always leave a little bit of the sandwich left over to give to her and I went down to give it to her and I realized for the first time she wasn't there and I lost it you know you're having a bad day it's okay to have a bad day you know you're having a bad day when you feel excluded you know you're having a bad day when you feel left out. You know you're having a bad day when you feel like you're an outsider looking in. Can you remember a time in your life, maybe it's happening to you right now, when you had that experience of being excluded? If you can relive it for just a moment with me, you'll remember that awful feeling in the pit of your stomach. You'll remember that bruising of the soul. You'll remember just how sad it made you feel. I thought about that in my own life, and the first one that came to mind was when I was in seventh grade. I had started playing the guitar, electric guitar, on my way to becoming a rock star. And so I joined up with a band, uh, with a bunch of schoolmates, and I was the lead guitarist, and we got together and practiced. I thought it sounded pretty good, but then we stopped having practice. And so I went to the leader of the band. I said, when are we going to have practice? He goes, not this week. And I'd go to him next week. When are we going to have practice? We've got to practice. No, not this week. Well, I found out through the grapevine that they had replaced me and did not tell me as their lead guitarist. And I felt so excluded. Went and cut off my ponytail. You don't need a ponytail unless you're a rock star. Why else would anybody have a ponytail as a guy unless you're a rock star? And I had to give up that dream. 
I recall another incident that I can't get out of my mind. This one didn't happen to me. It happened to someone I knew. I was in ninth grade, 15 years old. I had just a year ago became a believer in Jesus. And so the Spirit of God was in my life, stirring in me, nudging me, convicting me, talking to me all the time. So one day, I went to school, and there's this guy named Freddie. Freddie had a condition called water on the brain. His head was enormous and completely out of shape. We called it back then Melonhead. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's what we called him. That was kind of his nickname, Melonhead. And Freddie was an outcast. Many days, I remember my mom driving me to and from school. I would see Freddie walking to and from school all alone. One day, I went to school. It was in the morning, and down the hall, close to the lockers, there was Freddie, and a group of boys had surrounded him, and they were hitting on him. They were kicking him, they were spitting at him, and they were yelling out obscene names about him. And the spirit started to stir in me. And I said in my spirit, this is wrong. I need to step in and stand up for Freddie. That's the right thing to do. But then I got to thinking, what good's that going to do? It's not going to change the outcome for Freddie. The only outcome it's going to change is mine. And I'm going to end up being an outcast. And so I did absolutely nothing. Nothing. 35 years later, I still rethink how big of a coward I was on that day. Can't get it out of my mind. Well, I have good news for you. I have good news for you who feel excluded, who feel left out, who feel like an outcast. One of the most distinguishing characteristics of the vision of Jesus for his community, for his family, was to blow the doors off of smug exclusivity and introduce us to radical inclusivity. That's what I'd like to talk to you about today. It's one of the core values of Jesus, and therefore it's one of the core values of the Oak Hills Church. And to do so, I'd like to draw upon the life and teaching of Jesus himself. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. As you're turning there, I'd like to let you know that the most intimate invitation a person could receive in Jesus' day, and the same is true for us in our day, is an invitation to dinner. When someone rings you up or shoots you a email or send you an actual letter and invite you to dinner. Not one of those stand-up hors d'oeuvre kinds of encounters. Not one of those buffet meals where you sit where you can. I'm talking about an actual dinner experience where you have been given a seat at someone's table. That's powerful. I remember the first time I grew up in a blue-collar uh, family, lower middle income, and we didn't go out to many dinners at all. And I remember the uh, first time I was invited as a young adult to a fancy dinner where I didn't belong, <laughs> and I felt odd. 
But I went into the room, and sure enough, on the table was a place card with my name scripted in blue ink. And I thought at any moment someone's going to come up and say, you don't belong here. But I was going to say, no, 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 uh-uh. There's my name right there. I belong here, buddy. You can't kick me out. I have a seat at the table this fancy party. I ended up taking that place card with me. First time I ever seen my name printed and I think it was just a couple years ago I finally threw it out. Because we want to belong, don't we? We want to remember a time when we were told we belong in a place we knew we didn't belong. Well, in Jesus' day, both the Jews and the Gentiles, the two primary ethnic groups of that day, had dinner parties called table fellowships. And in both cases, with the Jews and the Greeks, they were exclusive dinners. The host, usually a rich and upstanding man in the community, would invite a select list of other folks, always men, and he would invite people who were as upstanding in their reputation and position and power in the community as his own personal reputation and standing and importance would allow him. And listen to this, when you came to the dinner of this wealthy host, you were seated at the table in order of importance. The highest people of honor sat next to the host. The person of least honor sat the furthest away from the host. You still felt good because you were invited and all those other people out there weren't, but you sat the furthest, that was the custom, you sat the furthest from the host. Now, the Greek experience almost always included dinner theater and music and almost always degenerated into a big, drunken orgy. The Jewish religious class gatherings were the same in the sense that they were a gathering of men only, of high-standing education in the community, but instead of dinner theater and drunken orgies, their conversation was talk about the law and likely chatter about how they were keeping it and how the poor people out there were disobeying it. Smug exclusivity. Then Jesus came on the scene and offered a new kind of table fellowship. Look at Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, there it is, he was being watched carefully. Now skip down to verse 7. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will, take, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to a higher and better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Jesus is giving a very practical and wise principle that will help you to avoid utter humiliation at a dinner party. It's good advice. But Jesus' heart has something much deeper in mind than just that. Look on with me in verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. How? Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is saying, if you really want to get to the heart of his vision, don't just invite people who are like you, people who you know, people who can reciprocate or do you a favor in the future. That's okay, but don't stop there. He says, rather invite over the person who has been forgotten, who has been left out. Why would I want to do that? Because even though they cannot reciprocate to you, Jesus tells us that God is looking down upon your home. And He's looking down upon your little organized table fellowship. And when you invite such a person to your table, He says He will personally reciprocate on behalf of the person who has been left out. What's He referring to? What does He mean? What is this idea of the resurrection of the righteous? Well, keep reading because Jesus is going to answer that question. Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. See, this was an acknowledged, a knowledgeable Jewish leader. He knew what the scriptures taught in the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament that in fact, and maybe some of you don't know the end outcome design of God, but in the end, this earth that we're living on will come to an end and God is going to rebuild or create a whole new earth and he is going to come down out of heaven and he's going to walk with those who are present on the new earth in the cool of the day like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. See, this is the end objective. This is the end outcome of God, but it doesn't stop there. The Bible teaches us, this man knew it, that there will be a feast every evening in this new kingdom to come, hosted by none other than Jesus himself. With that in mind, let me continue to read. Verse 16. Jesus replied, speaking of this kingdom feast to come, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But when they all alike began to make excuses, the first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. 
Still another, I just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> My new wife won't let me. Verse 21, the servant came back, and he reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will, take, will get a taste of my banquet. What is Jesus saying here? You have to understand, on this earth, when Jesus came a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't own his own home. And so therefore, he didn't have his own dinner table. Therefore, he could never invite guests over to his place because he didn't have one. He, at, he always had to be invited. And the Bible tells us in the Gospels, every time he was invited, he accepted the invitation. The same is true for us today. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus talking. I stand at your door and I'm knocking. And I'm calling out your name. And I'm hoping that you will open up your door because if you do, what I'd like to do is come and have a seat at your table and have a meal with you. That's why it's important for us when we gather around the table, when we gather for a meal, that we say grace. Because we are, in a sense, inviting Jesus to sit at our table and you know when Jesus shows up as a party guest it's a lot of fun and people's lives are affected everybody in striking distance of his presence is affected but now in the new kingdom he's going to have his own place and he's going to host his own dinners every night and all who have accepted Christ's invitation in this life will be there. The day that you accepted Christ as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins is the day in red ink your name was inscribed on a place card and a seat was set for you at the table of Jesus. He is saying that the people who on this earth are being exclusive and smug and think they're better than other people are often the people who are in fact rejecting his invitation to have a seat at his table in the kingdom to come. And on the other hand, often broken people who see their need more easily, whether because of their sin or their poverty or their frailty, these are the ones who are more likely in this life to accept an invitation to be at Jesus' table in the life to come. So what does this mean for us today as followers of Jesus? What does it mean to us? I want you to take a look at the screen. Here's a good summary statement. We invite all people to be a part of God's community regardless. Say it with me. We invite all people to be a part of God's community 
regardless. I remember when the staff and elders were sitting down studying this value out of the scriptures, we tried to make an exhaustive list of people that needed to know that they weren't excluded. And so we started writing, regardless of your age, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your gender. And we made this long list, like three pages long. And we kept asking, are we leaving anybody out? Are we leaving anybody out? And one of our elders said, why don't you just say regardless, period? Duh. <laughs> so look at this principle. At the Oak Hills Church, regardless means regardless, period. I love that. It means that there is not anyone who is not invited to this assembly. It means there's not anyone who should be left out at our table experience. The convict, divorced, mentally challenged, the drunk, blue skin, purple skin, gay, a failure. Regardless, period. And if anyone hearing these words disagrees with this, then we have formed a committee and they're going to probe into your life to find the sin that Jesus died for to save you. And we're going to post that sin on our front billboard on I-10 and remind you that you are now in the list of the outsiders and you're not invited. And then we're going to ask you, how does that make you feel? I'm getting a little worked up up here. <laughs> Someone give me an amen. amen. We have to get over the notion that while there are sins in this life that have deeper and darker effects on other people, we have to understand that there are no degrees of sin with Christ. One sin, whether we consider it big or we consider it little, is all you need to commit, the Bible tells us, to keep you from Christ's table in the kingdom to come if your hope is to get there on the basis of your own merit. The big sins and the small sins both require Christ's blood to be poured over them for there to be an invitation accepted. Principle number two is pretty radical. We allow people to belong before they believe. This is huge, folks. The church hasn't done a good job with this in 200 years. It means that we, just like in the practice of Jesus, like he did with Zacchaeus and like he did with Matthew, like he did with the woman who was a sinful woman that had the audacity to walk into a Jewish table fellowship that Jesus was at and the Jewish religious leaders were scowling at her and Jesus said, come on in. And remember, she washed his feet with her tears. We're invited, just like Jesus, to hang out with our neighbors and to have dinner with them. Yes, even those who are sinners, only to find ourselves in good company. Our goal is not to clean them up so they can come to Christ. Our heart is that they may come to Christ so that he can clean them up himself. Leave righteous washing to Jesus because our rags are too dirty to clean anyone up. 
If our goal is to get people cleaned up so they can come to church or cleaned up before they accept the forgiveness of Christ and we try to use our own rags to clean them up, because they're dirty, they're going to end up dirtier than they were when they started. At Oak Hills, we hold the value that you can belong before you believe. You have a seat at our table because we believe that if people can feel the warmth and the love of a family that is driven by the virtues and values of Jesus, they won't be able to help themselves but to believe in him. One more point. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. The only way any of us gets an invitation to Jesus' table for eternity is acceptance of Him. It doesn't work with Him like it does on this earth. It's not based upon your wealth, your race, not your position, not your gender, not your power, but simple acceptance by faith. And we can't say this very often because it doesn't apply, but here is one of the cases where it does. One size fits all. So I ask you this question. You, have you accepted Jesus' invitation for dinner? He says to you, there's still room. Isn't that awesome? But this thing called inclusion can be a little deceptive. It's very, very possible for followers of Jesus to hear this kind of teaching and say, yes, I embrace that teaching. Yes, I'm, I'm on board with this idea of inclusion, but I have discovered in my own personal life that it's a lot more deceptive. Our heart is about what we really believe. Several years ago, when I was still living in Fort Worth and pastoring a large church there, our neighborhood group, um, would gather together once a month and we would provide food and we would go serve that food at the local homeless shelter. There was usually around 30 of us who gathered together in cars and minivans and made our way to the homeless shelter. Far too many than was needed to feed the homeless. Uh, and so therefore, we would all stand behind the counter and take turns serving f the food to them. It was really kind of an odd thing that never really made much sense to me that we would wait in line to pour baked beans on the plate of a homeless person uh, so they could eat it. Uh, and it was even more senseless to me because afterwards, because we weren't supposed to eat with them, we would go to dinner afterward at a restaurant where the food cost five times what it cost to provide the food for the homeless. And something never sort of matched up to me. Why can't we just go sit and eat with them? But we, I don't know if we were told not to, but no one did. I don't know if we were scared or whatever, but I'm standing in line. I'm about 15 minutes away from putting potato salad on a plate. I got nothing to do, and my outgoing personality got the best of me, and I got out of the kitchen, and I went into the dining room <laughs> with the homeless people. Now, I didn't eat because I was afraid I was going to get kicked out, but I sat down with them and started to chat with them. And then all of a sudden, another guy who was a member of our church but wasn't a part of our neighborhood group, came and sat down with me. And I finally said to him, uh, hey, I'm kind of curious how you found out about this serving opportunity because you don't live in our neighborhood. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Randy, 
I'm not here to serve. This is where I live. And what happened next, I am so ashamed of. I didn't mean for it to happen, but you see, at times when you're least expecting it, your heart will show itself up on your face and you have to deal with it. But my face changed. He saw it and I knew he saw it. I all of a sudden looked at him differently. He was no longer a member of our upwardly mobile congregation. He was a homeless person. All of a sudden, I had to deal with that reality. Now, I like homeless people. I'm there to help them for crying out loud. But we're not the same, my heart was telling him through my face. We're not the same. And I could see the devastation on his face. And when I left that night, quietly I wrestled with God for the darkness I found in my heart that I didn't know was there. And God said to me, Randy, I want you to keep going back to the homeless shelter, not to serve the homeless, but until you can look them square in the eye and see no difference between you and them. And I did. I kept going back. No change. I kept going back. Nothing. I kept going back. Nothing. But then there was this one night. I got into a conversation with a Jamaican woman who lived at the shelter. And I, I was asking her about her story and I discovered that she was this unbelievable business entrepreneur. And we talked about her businesses and I was mesmerized by what she had done. And then she said to me, but all that came to an end because I have a problem with anger. And my anger and my pride cost me everything and that's why I'm here today in this homeless shelter. And I thought to myself as she was saying this, you know, that could happen to me. That could happen to anybody I know. And so I asked her some follow-up questions about, you know, how all that comes about and what she's doing and all of this. And, and then God whispered in my ear, there you go, Randy. It's not that hard. You're learning how to do life from a homeless person. I said, yes, Lord, I am. There's no difference between you, is there, Randy? No, Lord, there's not. Thank you. Back to Freddie's story. 35 years ago, I didn't stand up for Freddie because I didn't want to become an outcast. But that's what Jesus did when he came. He came and made himself an outcast when he hung out with them. Because the smug, exclusive people were watching him carefully. And he knew they were. And when he chose to cross the line and, and do dinner with them and invite them in, he stood up for them and it cost him everything. He stood up for them and the popular crowd stood him on a cross. They beat him, they spit on him, and they called him names. And sure enough, he lost the fight that day. And he got himself killed for every outcast who has ever lived, including Freddie. How do I know that? If you have your Bible still open to Luke chapter 14, I want you to go back because we skipped over a couple of verses. I want you to go back to verse 2. Remember, Jesus has entered into the house of the prominent Pharisee. And then in verse 2 it says, There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Your translation might read the word dropsy. 
Abnormal swelling of the body was a disease that basically involved excessive fluid on a part of the body. Maybe on the brain. Right there in front of Jesus at this table fellowship is Freddy of the first century. Isn't that odd? The week I decide to teach on this and I pick this passage, Jesus still messing with me. The only time in the Bible I know of where Jesus heals a man with melon head. But that's exactly what he did. He didn't do nothing. Look at verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They were looking to catch him. And if Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, he was going to be toast. Looks what it says he did. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. I did nothing. Jesus did everything. I lost touch with Freddie and those guys who roughed him up that day. But I have a hunch. I believe I'll probably be having dinner with Freddie in the near future. And he just might be sitting closer to Jesus than me. Congregation of the Oak Hills Church, are you on board with this radical value of Jesus called inclusivity? Now think about it, because if you truly embrace it and are willing to look in your heart and all the darkness that's there, it could change everything for us. So let me ask you again. Think carefully. Congregation of the Oak Hills Church, are you on board with this radical vision of Jesus called inclusivity? You have no idea what you're saying. I'm going to give you one more chance to back out. <laughs> Congregation of the Oak Hills Church, are you sure you want to be on board with this radical vision of Jesus called inclusivity? Yeah. All right. Well, we just might then, after all, be able to change this city for the cause of Christ. So let us then go do what Jesus did for us. Let us invite all people to be a part of God's community, regardless, period. And all of God's people said... Amen.